Well, good morning, Three Rivers. Today we are continuing in a series of what we believe. In the last few weeks, Mitch has kind of taken us through creation and the different implications of the fact that God creates and the fall. And we looked at what it means that we are sinful and fallen and and learning to hate sin and to pursue righteousness. Last week, we looked at the glorious, glorious news of the gospel of how God saves us and how he brings us into his kingdom. And today I want us to look at a topic that is something that we talk about from time to time in our church, but I think as evangelicals, we don't talk a lot about. And that's the gospel of the kingdom. This is something that we see throughout the New Testament. We see it particularly in the book of Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew. So if you have a Bible, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to be kind of looking at several places in Matthew, but particularly Matthew uh, 5 today, as we talk about the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus goes and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. Now, hold your finger there and flip over to Matthew 9, verse 35. And we see this second bookend statement on the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What is this gospel of the kingdom? Well, that's what I hope that we can understand today, what it means that Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, what the message of the gospel of the kingdom is, and what we as kingdom people, what, what uh, ought to make our lives look like that gospel of the kingdom, what it is that marks our lives as citizens of the kingdom. So we're going to talk about the gospel of the kingdom and what the kingdom citizens look like. But first of all, let's talk about the kingdom. What is the kingdom? This is a concept that we see throughout the whole Old Testament. And it gets picked up on by Jesus particularly, but also throughout the New Testament. That God is king over all creation. Listen just to a smattering of, of passages. Psalm ten sixteen says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat confesses in Second Chronicles 20, verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. There's a section of Psalms in the, in the 90s, 93, 95, 96, 98, that are called the enthronement Psalms, where we see God being declared as king over all the nations, and specifically over Israel, and being worshipped as king. Simply put, We understand from the Bible that God is king, that he is sovereign over all the nations, that he is the ruler of the universe. And so this Old Testament teaching is the necessary context that we understand when we hear Jesus talk about what it means to to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and what it means to be in the kingdom. Because everything Jesus is teaching from, he's also explaining from the Old Testament himself and proclaiming himself from the Old Testament. And so his announcement that the kingdom of God was at hand in Matthew 3, 2 was consistent with what we see in the Old Testament. And the Jews that Jesus preached to, they knew that God was king. 
They knew that he had always been king. But what they didn't know was that Jesus was breaking in uniquely into their lives and into history. And that he was coming to inaugurate a new and different kind of kingdom. A kingdom in full that was announced by Israel's prophets. And it was going to be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. So a quick definition of what the kingdom is. Tim Keller says it like this. The kingdom of God is the renewal of the whole world through the entrance of supernatural forces. As things are brought back under Christ's rule and authority, they are restored to health, beauty, and freedom. This is the reversing of the curse of the fall. When we looked at the fall, we understood that because of sin entering our world, that everything became broken. And as Jesus comes, he begins to turn things back. He restores in our own life, and there's a promise of restoration in the age to come that it will not be just for our own bodies, but for all of creation. We don't talk a whole lot about the kingdom of God sometimes in evangelical circles, but it is what the Gospels talk about constantly. In fact, in the book of Matthew, we see the kingdom 53 times just in the book of Matthew. So we're going to look at a lot of those passages this morning, um, and then we're going to focus in on a, on a few aspects of that. So what is the gospel of the kingdom that we looked at these first two passages, Matthew 4 and Matthew 9? Well, the best that I can sum it up is this. The gospel of the kingdom is the message of the good news that Jesus saves everyone who repents and believes in him. It's the promise that King Jesus will ultimately restore every area of our life and his creation to his purposes. And this good news is an invitation to the people of God's kingdom to participate with Jesus in his mission. He saves us from something, but he saves us for something as well. So it's the sure reality that one day God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get to be a part of that now and we get to be a part of that later. The gospel of the kingdom touches every area of our lives as individuals, as families, and as a church. It has implications for how we order our lives. It has implications for how we budget as a family, how we budget as a church, what our priorities are. The gospel of the kingdom means that Jesus is not just Lord over our souls, but he's also Lord over our bodies. It means our vocations matter. It means what we do Monday to Friday has implications because he has sent us into different domains of society. It bursts our church's DNA, KDSC, Kingdom Kingdom Disciple Society Church. The gospel of the kingdom, when preached, makes disciples. And those disciples in society... As they share that good news of the gospel, the church is birthed. Jesus' ministry we see in these, in these two pa- kind of bookend passages was always to the whole person. He preached the good news, but he also demonstrated. He brought good news. He brought healing. He brought, uh, he brought uh, healing from disease, healing from death, oppression from demons. He, he calmed the storms. He he didn't just proclaim a message. He brought that same message with him. And the gospel of the kingdom deals with all the things that the cross affected. Not just salvation, but the reconciliation of all things, including the material world that was lost at the fall. It deals with every person, every part of creation, and every domain of society. There's a quote that I love from Abraham uh, Kuyper. He's a Dutch theologian and politician. He says, Oh, no single piece of our world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest, and there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, 
who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The bottom line is that the gospel of the kingdom transforms every area of our life. So how do we enter the kingdom of God? Well, we looked at this extensively last week, but the Bible has two words for how we enter the kingdom of God. How do we become citizens of this kingdom? How do we follow Jesus as our king? Two simple words, repent and believe. We turn from our sin, we turn to Christ in faith. John 3, 3, in his, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Mark 1, 15, as he inaugurates his ministry, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We enter the kingdom when we turn from our own efforts to be king and we acknowledge the sovereignty of the, of the true king. That's what repentance looks like. And, and then we trust in the goodness of our king. We believe in him and we give our lives to him. So how do we see this kingdom described in the book of Matthew? Well, I want to flip back to Matthew 1. And we're just going to walk through a few, a few chapters of Matthew very quickly. And if you'll just look at, we'll look at a few key verses and maybe even some of the headings that you see in your Bible. How do we see this kingdom described in, in Matthew? I think all of Matthew can be outlined in relation to the fact that Jesus is king. But his kingdom is not a kingdom of this earth. It's an upside down kind of kingdom where he comes to be a, ser- a servant to us. But make no mistake, he is our king. So in Matthew 1 and 2, we see the king arrive. We see that Jesus is a king in the line of David through all the genealogy here. We see that he is a peasant who is hailed as a king by wise men, and he is feared by Herod. In Matthew chapters 3 and 4, we see the announcement from John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew 3, 2. In chapter 4, we see Jesus being tempted to abdicate his throne by Satan. We see him reject that temptation and we see him begin his public ministry. Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that John had preached. Matthew four twenty three, the passage I read at the beginning. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. John Piper commenting on this verse says, One way to restate that verse would be to say that Jesus made it his ministry to preach the coming of the kingdom, teach the way of the kingdom, and demonstrate the purpose and power of the kingdom by healing the sick. So again, our working definition of the kingdom, the the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom is the message of the good news that Jesus saves everyone who repents and believes in him. It's the promise that King Jesus will ultimately restore every area of our lives and his creation to to his purposes. And this good news is an invitation to us, the people of God's kingdom, to, to participate with Jesus in his mission. If you look at 
Matthew 5. Matthew 5 to 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' most condensed teaching about the kingdom. And really, there's three parts to this. Matthew 5, we see the kingdom, the king speaking his heart. And the King Jesus describes the, the spiritual postures, the principles, the expectations of kingdom citizens. We're going to look at a few of those in a few minutes. We see in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 6, we see this continuation in the teaching of the kingdom. And Jesus presents kingdom models for giving, for prayer, for fasting, for using money, and for trusting. In Matthew 6.10, when Jesus teaches his disciples and us how to pray, he teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.33, he tells us to not be worried about all the stuff of life, right? What we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. How is God going to provide for us? But he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 7, we see King Jesus teaching us how to judge properly. How to ask God for what we need. How do we treat others how to live as a true child of the Heavenly Father. And he teaches us that a disciple is one that hears and obeys his words. Matthew seven twenty one, a scary passage of judgment. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we see the king demonstrating his authority. King Jesus heals many from all walks of life. You see him interacting with poor, with wealthy, with Jews, with Gentiles. And he heals them of diseases. He casts out demons. He even calms the storm and proves that he is king over all creation. And Jesus talks about the cost of being his follower. That being a follower of Jesus means that we take up our cross, we follow him, that we're willing to follow him whenever and wherever. And again, this passage, Matthew 9 35 to 38, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Again, we are called to participate with him in his mission. And that's a glorious benefit and responsibility of being part of his kingdom. In Matthew 10, we're going to see King Jesus, after he calls his disciples to pray for the Lord to send out workers into, into the harvest, he's going to send his disciples out. He's going to delegate the authority that has been given to him. He's going to send his disciples into the fields for harvest, and he's going to give them instructions Matthew ten seven, as he sends his disciples out, he says, And proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I could go on and on through the rest of Matthew, but you get the flavor of the, it's all about King Jesus. It's all about his kingdom. It's all about what does that mean to follow him. Well, what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at is what does a kingdom citizen look like? What should the lives of those who are kingdom citizens, be marked by. And we're going to see, so there's some attitudes, some postures in Matthew 5 that 
that demonstrate to us, that describe to us, what does a disciple look like? So two summary statements as we look at these statements called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes describe what kingdom people are. They don't prescribe what we have to do to be kingdom people. Okay, this is a, this is, sometimes we get this turned around and very often when I talk to people who are not Christians, we get this turned around. It's not, I'm good enough and therefore God accepts me. I'm good enough and therefore I'm in the kingdom. It's, I'm in the kingdom, so therefore act like you're in the kingdom. It's, uh, we tell this to our kids when we go out in public, right? We, we, our kids are very well behaved and Natalie won't even look at me right now. But when we go out in public, we say, we love you. We will always love you. There's nothing you can do that will make us not love you. So act like you are a member of this family. And there's certain expectations that go with being a member of this family, right? If they misbehave, it's not that we won't love them anymore. But there's certain expectations that we have. And as we are members of God's kingdom, as we are members of the household of God, there are certain expectations of how we are to act, how we are to follow our king. The, The basis on which we are accepted and made a member of the kingdom has nothing to do with our behavior. But because we are members of the kingdom... There's a certain way that we need to represent our king. So the Beatitudes don't teach us how to get in the kingdom, but they teach us what kingdom behavior looks like. The Beatitudes are also directly related to being salt and light. These two statements that Jesus makes about his disciples, about how they impact society. They're the, the qualities that cause us to be salt and light. You will be salt and light to the extent that you live the Beatitudes. To the extent that your life looks like and smells like the Beatitudes to those around you that don't know Jesus. So let me read verses 13 to 16. This is the effects of living out the Beatitudes. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We know that salt is a preservative of meat, of food, and it gives flavor. And in a society where there is no refrigeration, it's really important to be able to preserve your food for more than 24 hours. Jesus, in the same way, compares us to that salt, that we are to be a preservative effect in our, in our culture. We're to be a flavoring effect of the gospel in our culture. Salt is meant to be mixed into food and to flavor it. And just as we are to be mixed into the different domains that he has called us to, we're not to be gathered up in a holy huddle. You ever had a, had a big uh, container of salt and you kept it on your shelf and you didn't put it in your food and then you ate your food and wondered why it didn't taste right? Because you didn't put the salt in. Have you ever poured all the salt meant for the whole dish into one bite and then ate that? It's disgusting, right? I don't do that. So we're not meant to all be bound up together. We're meant to be mixed in all throughout society and take the preserving and the flavoring nature of the gospel throughout everywhere that we go. In the same way, Jesus talks about salt that has lots of impurities in it. What does he say? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and to be trampled under the ground. Literally, they, they had so, 
It was so common to have salt that had impurities in it. Think of today uh, maybe rock salt for your ice cream or salt that we use to melt ice. You can't eat that stuff. It'll make you sick. So all you can do is throw it out, kill the grass, make a sidewalk. It's not good for the purpose that it was to, to be intended for to be eaten. It's not good to flavor things with. And Jesus says, if we're full of impurities, if our character doesn't look like the character of our king, then it's, it's, good, it's not good for anything for the world to see who our king is and to, to understand what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. Jesus compares us to the light of the world. Light helps gives us hope and direction and helps others see our King Jesus. If we have no light, we're no help to a dark world. You know, in, in this time, a typical Jewish household would take a lamp and maybe you'd only have one lamp in a house or certainly only one in a room. And you have a dark room and you'd put that lamp up on a lampstand so that it gives light to the whole room. We do this today, right? Our lights are on the ceilings. They're not on the floor. Why? Because it, it gives light to the whole room. And so we want to, as we shine for Jesus, we want people to see him in us and give praise to him. Not to look at us, not to say, look at me, I'm great, but to look at him and say, King Jesus is great. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to think that we're living as kingdom people because we believe in Jesus. But what we're going to see in these Beatitudes is they help us kind of examine our hearts and examine the attitudes of our hearts to see, do the things that are within me that always come out? Because Jesus told us what's inside of us always comes out of us. The things inside me that come out, are they the attitudes, are they the postures of a disciple of Jesus? Are they the one that is making Jesus great? So let me read these, and I'm going to quickly, what I want to do in the rest of the time that we have together is quickly read through these Beatitudes, make a couple of observations, and as our application for today do some self-assessment of how are, we, how are we doing. Remember, these are not assessments to say, am I in the kingdom? The basis of whether we're in the kingdom is have we repented, are we believing in Jesus? But these, this is an assessment of how am I following my king? How can, I, how can I follow him better? And I would encourage you, as you think about these, as you, as you self-assess and think about these things, these are things for us to do individually, but they're also things for us to do corporately. They're things for us to do in our radical life group. And to say, how am I seeing these attitudes, these beatitudes, lived out in the lives of others? Where is, there, where is there things that are praiseworthy, maybe that others don't see in themselves? Where is there room for improvement? How can we, as, as the community of the kingdom, follow Jesus better together? Let me read Matthew 5, 1 to 12. And just even as a, as a, as a one small rabbit trail before we get into this, I love that when Jesus teaches here, he calls the crowd to him. There's, his disciples are there. He's primarily teaching his disciples. But he's teaching for the whole world to hear. This is public teaching. And so there also ought to be an aspect of that in our own lives as well. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This word, blessed, is a word that sometimes we might not completely understand. We talk a lot about being blessed, right, in our society. But what does it mean to be blessed biblically? Some people would translate this word happy. Happy is the one. And yet, and there's a sense of, of this word that means happy, but there's a, there's a lot deeper sense to it as well. It's a deep sense of inner well-being regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what's happening to us and around us. It means to be well off, to be uh, included in God's family. Family inclusion of, of God is, is an essential part of being blessed, to be favored by God, to be happy in a way that's not dependent on our circumstances. And the kingdom's blessings, being blessed, is contrasted often with what does it mean to be blessed, to be happy in our world. The world thinks happiness is getting your own way, having a lot of stuff. Just watch any commercial on TV, right? The world thinks that the happy people are the rich people, the people that have everything they need, that are famous, that are successful, that are powerful, that are confident, that are self-sufficient, that are proud. But by our world standards, even looking at the Bible, we, someone like Solomon should have been the most blessed person, should have been the most happiest person that ever lived. What was his... What was the end of what he said when he had everything that he had ever wanted to satisfy every desire that he ever wanted? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The happiness that fills this void can't be manufactured by our world, and it's not something we can manufacture for ourselves, because physical stuff doesn't meet our spiritual needs. So let's look at these a little bit closer. And like I said, this is, this is a, a way to self-assess personally and also corporately. The first one, being poor in spirit. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The posture that we ought to come to when we think about this verse is that God blesses those who realize their need for him. And the promise that we have is the kingdom of heaven is given to us when we do that. Have you ever been in a bankrupt position? Have you ever been in a place financially where you were completely dependent on somebody else to supply what you needed and you couldn't do it for yourself? Have you ever been in a place where you were completely dependent on someone else to provide even your next meal? That spiritually is what this beatitude is talking about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When we recognize that spiritually we are bankrupt, we bring nothing to the equation with God, that it is totally his grace to us that saves us, that makes us part of his kingdom. This beatitude describes one who is humble before God. When we recognize that we have nothing to contribute and we come to the king as a helpless and a hopeless sinner and there's no arrogance, no selfishness, no, no self-righteousness, no self-sufficiency in us, we are free from pretension and we're free for God. I think often there's this natural inclination that we want to think that we have some standing before God rather than to acknowledge that we have a, in, our, in and of ourselves a spiritually bankrupt condition. 
There's lots of different things that we try to kind of put on our spiritual balance sheet to say, I am somebody before God. When all of us stand at the level foot of the cross together in complete need of Jesus. So as you self-assess your own spiritual poverty, your own spiritual bankruptcy, being poor in spirit, think about this statement. How would you rate yourself on this statement? Maybe on a scale of 1 to 10. I recognize my spiritual bankruptcy and my need for God. Because my relationship with God depends on His grace, I know I'm incapable of earning God's love on my own. Spiritual bankruptcy. Attitude of the kingdom, number one. The second one that we see, those who mourn. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The posture here of is of one who comes before God mourning over sin. Now certainly this can be also mourning in the sense of mourning a loss, mourning a death. But I think in this context, and as, as it fits with the other Beatitudes that all come together, there's also a sense of mourning over our sin, that we are spiritually bankrupt. And the promise is that we will be comforted. The repentant person who recognizes the weight of his or her sin and spiritual bankruptcy The only proper way to respond to that initially is is sorrow over that sin. This is not being sorry for the consequences of our sin, but this is being sorry for even the offense that we have, have had to God himself. And when we are sorrowful over our sin, God's grace is sweet to us. When God is merciful to us, we acknowledge that and it's it's very sweet to us. And so it's through God's grace that we experience great joy and the comfort of the forgiveness that he offers us. So as you self-assess, how do I mourn over sin? Think about this statement. I feel the pain that sin, especially my own, causes, and I yearn for the forgiveness and healing that only Jesus offers. How would you rate yourself there? The third beatitude, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. The spiritual posture that we come to God with in in this is being gentle and lowly. And the promise that he gives us is that the whole earth will belong to us. Meekness is a quality that Jesus used to describe himself. Matthew 12, 11, 29. He says, take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I think often we, we mistake um, this word for passivity. We mistake meekness for weakness. And it is not meekness, or it is not weakness at all. It's the opposite. It is strength under control. It is being able to do something and yet deferring to someone else. It's having the maturity and the grace to use the power that we have for constructive instead of destructive purposes. We see the, the practical way that this works out in businesses all the time, right? There's been a huge emphasis over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years on servant leadership in businesses. Um, we talked about this in, in the business world. Why is that? People are repulsed by arrogance, but they're drawn to those that are humble and those that are servants. And that's why it's, it's both biblical and practical to have servant leadership. And we ought to have that in the church as well. So based on a, on a correct view of meekness, this power under control, this willingly being able to submit to others, do you yield easily to others? Do you yield reluctantly to others? Do you find it difficult to not be in charge of everything? 
When's the last time you had to consciously submit to somebody else and you were okay with it? Do you do so in a gentle way or do you take it in uh, take on some other form? So as you self-assess yourself with meekness, think about this. My self-worth doesn't depend on being seen as the strong one who is always in control. I can be tender and gentle. I've given control of my life to Jesus and I don't always have to get my way. As we walk through these and we self-assess these things, I have to tell you, you know, these are, these are things that I struggle with. I think these are things that we all struggle with. And yet these are marks of the kingdom. These are marks of being transformed by Jesus and being made into a disciple of Jesus. So the fourth one, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The posture is that we come before God seeking his righteousness, and he's going to bless that. He tells us we'll receive it in full. That we'll get everything that we need. What's the longest period of time you've ever gone without food? Or maybe the longest time that you've gone without drinking something. Do you remember what it felt like to be really, really hungry or thirsty? What were you willing to do to satisfy that hunger or thirst? What things that you would not normally eat were you willing to eat? The Old Testament prophets denounced Israel for a a lack of righteousness because they neglected to do justice for the poor and the oppressed. Some of the most common charges that we see the prophets leveling against Israel were uneven scales that cheated the buyer, judges that showed favoritism, and neglecting the widow and the orphan and the sojourner among them. Israel was very, very religious, but often they didn't declare God's righteous character in their actions. And Jesus promises satisfaction to the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, displaying God's character, his holy character in our lives. This word translated satisfied means to be filled. It could also mean to be gorged, completely satisfied. The one who was empty and craving has total satisfaction and total commitment, total contentment. It's like finishing that Thanksgiving meal and sitting down and just... Want to take a nap. So as you think about how do I hunger and thirst for righteousness, self-assess on this statement. I want to know God and be conformed to the image of Christ more than anything, including my own pleasure, status, or success. I want his character to be displayed in my life and the lives of others. The fifth beatitude is merciful. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. God tells us that we will be blessed when we're merciful. And that reciprocally he will bless us as well. Mercy is God's active empathy and his compassion to all of us. All of us who are guilty and needy. The very fact that we are part of his kingdom implies that he has been merciful to us. That we are objects of his mercy. And we know that when we come before him, we are without a shadow of a doubt guilty. And yet, despite this condition, God chooses to be merciful to us. He chooses to love us and to extend his kindness and good to us. This is described really well for us in Ephesians 2, 4 to 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So as you self-assess on how you're doing with being merciful, think about this statement. I'm aware of how incredibly merciful God has been to me and how little in comparison my mercy is to others. God's mercy towards me eradicates self-righteousness in my heart. <clears throat> I can share the feelings of, God, of people who are hurting, lonely, or distressed and walk alongside them in their pain. God has given me a sensitivity for the suffering of others and a compassion to help them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The sixth statement, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart and promise that we will truly see God. This term that Matthew uses here means pure, but it can also mean clean. Uh, it can be used to mean literal cleanness, like not having dirt. But the Bible often uses it, and Jesus often used it, to mean moral purity, moral cleanness. Think about his conversations with the Pharisees when he talked about they were whitewashed tombs, that they were clean cups on the outside, but on the inside was death and decay and rottenness. Jesus taught that purity of heart was most important, not washing your hands necessarily, but having a pure heart. It means the absence of impurity or filth. It implies a singleness of purpose without distraction. Kind of like being holy, being set apart, being separate from. And so any distracting or corrupting influence that we see as kingdom servants makes us less effective as servants for our king. So as you think about being pure in heart, having a pure heart before God, self-assess on this statement. My heart is focused on King Jesus so that sin tastes bad to me. I don't have to put on a false front or pretend to be something that I'm not. My life is marked with integrity. Same as in, in private as we are in public. The seventh one, blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 9, blessed are the, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. God tells us that as we have this posture of working towards peace, We'll be called children of God. Peacemaking is difficult, isn't it? It's painstaking. It's painful sometimes. It's not conflict avoidance. I think very often what we see in the world is peacemaking equals conflict avoidance. And you see this with the United Nations. They, just, they bring in peacekeeping troops and they say, you go over here and you go over here and don't fight and we're going to stay in the middle. But that's not peacemaking. That's peacekeeping, and there's a big difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacemaking brings two warring factions together, and it makes them part of the same family. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. It, it, it brings us together when we're enemies, and it reconciles us, and it assumes that there's some humility and forgiveness that happens there. And we see that most fully in what Jesus did for us at the cross. Ephesians 2, 13 to 16 describes this really well as, as well. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus came and made peace with us. The Bible tells us that we were with, at enmity with God, and that's a war that we will never, ever win. And yet God, being rich in mercy, loved us enough to send Jesus to reconcile us to him and then to give us a ministry of reconciliation, to reconcile us to one another and to help others know the reconciliation that they can have with the Father. So as you self-assess about how, I, how am I doing as a disciple making, being a peacemaker, think about this statement. I initiate reconciliation with those I have offended or been offended by because God is a reconciling God. Rather than allowing anger and conflict to fester, I deal with them constructively. I help bring peace to conflict around me by living out the peace of God. The last beatitude that we see is dealing with persecution. Verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The posture that we have when we come to this one is that God blesses those who are persecuted because they live for righteousness and they live for Jesus. And the promise is that we will get the kingdom of heaven. I think persecution is something we're not very well acquainted with in the United States. We hear stories about our, our brothers and sisters around the world that are persecuted for following Jesus. We have inconveniences. We have Maybe we're made fun of sometimes, but it's, we don't really get persecuted here in the same way that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are often persecuted. But it is something that's familiar all around the globe to brothers and sisters who are following Jesus. And Jesus promises that those who follow him get this honor in the kingdom. There's a special honor reserved for them. There's a, a special uh, reward in, for, of, of theirs in the kingdom of heaven. So sometimes we deal with maybe somebody that makes a snide remark. We deal with a lot of stuff in the media. We deal a lot of, with a lot of stuff that uh, marginalizes our, our viewpoint and our worldview as Christians. But we're not yet to the point where people are seizing our houses. They're, we're losing our jobs. That we're being put in prison for proclaiming the name of Jesus. So think about this statement as you, as you think about persecution. I know for whom and for what I am living. And for this I'm willing to suffer if need be and stand alone for what is right. I can accept unwarranted criticism for following Jesus without retaliating or feeling self-pity. And I think part of understanding persecution also means that there's an impetus for us to pray for those around the globe that do experience persecution, to identify with our brothers and sisters who do have dire consequences uh, when they publicly follow Jesus. So as you think about each of these kingdom attitudes, ask yourself one more question. Based on these beatitudes, how would you say your light is shining for Jesus? Is it a 100-watt bulb? Is it a 30-watt bulb? Is it a night light? I want to close with what I think is the best public example that I have seen of a Christian being salt and light in a long time. 
Um, a couple of weeks ago, you guys probably saw this, October the 2nd, there was this stunning clip that went viral. And I think everybody saw it. It was all over the news. It was all over social media. It was everywhere. Where Brant Jean, the African-American man who forgave uh, the white police officer, Amber Geiger, who broke into the apartment of, her bro- of his brother, Botham Jean, thinking that it was hers, and she shot him as he sat there eating ice cream on his couch. And Brant Jean testified, and he told this disgraced officer in court that he forgave her, and he pleaded with her to give her life to Jesus. And he, he hugged her to show her his genuineness. It was, it was just a stunning, powerful moment. And yet it was also a very polarizing moment in our society because there's a lot of people that wanted not just justice but also vengeance and said, how could you forgive someone who did this to your family? But Brant Jean extended mercy in that moment, and in doing so he put on display being poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercifulness, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, and responding to persecution. And his testimony was a bright light for Jesus. It was a moment of gospel clarity where he got to proclaim for the whole world why he believed in Jesus and what difference that made. And some people responded in awe and praise. Some people responded in anger. Some people responded wanting vengeance instead of mercy. But everybody heard the witness of Jesus and everybody was forced to deal with and to respond to that, to react to a kingdom perspective on sin and on suffering and on forgiveness. So as we prepare to respond to what God has said to us through his word this morning, let's ask him to help us embody these kingdom attributes. Let's ask him to help us live these out so that we are salt and light in a decaying and dark world, so that others hear the gospel, but not only hear the gospel, they see, they taste, they can touch the gospel in our lives, and that they give praise to our Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. God, you are good, you are holy, you are other than us. And although we know that in and of ourselves our character will never measure up to you, that you promise us by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit that you are not done with us, that he who began a good work in in us will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So as we meditate on your word, as we think about the reality of your kingdom, as we think about what you've called us to be as disciples of you, as our king. God, help us to follow you with all that we are. Make the desires of our hearts be your desires. Help us to respond in worship in all that we do. I pray this in Jesus' name.